podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you today? Hey, John, I am doing great. Thank you. It is uh, officially autumn, which is nice. The weather is getting a little bit cooler, although I am still using the air conditioner today, so hopefully audio-wise this will be pretty good. I'm excited to talk about our topic, though, today. So how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, we've got, I've got myself a new, uh, PC set up, uh, which doesn't really affect much on the recording side, but the zoom stuff just looks a bit different. Uh, so that, that probably affects you more than it, uh, affects me as far as how I look and sound. You're in a much higher resolution than I've ever seen you on for these podcasts. Yeah. Well, thank God this is an audio medium. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, yeah, I definitely noticed the temperature, uh, dropping for us. Um, and we've definitely come up with a AC solution for in the mixing and editing for on your side of things. So I feel like, uh, probably by the time we get to recording next month's episode, we'll be like in our sweet spot of, uh, not being blazingly hot, uh, and can just like cuddle up with blankets and stuff. Yeah. You'll get like a good five, six months of really good audio. And then as soon as it gets hot again, deal with it <laughs> yeah. we'll have to well it sounds just like the tiny like when you to to audit, edit out the noises there's just like the tiniest bit like telephone sound uh just from trying to drop out all those uh frequencies but you know what i think i found a nice balance that works for everyone so nice one more of those and then we can uh uh just go absolutely wild uh, with our recordings. So uh, this time around, we're talking around a couple of films from the director Wong Kar Wai. Um, this was my choice, and I don't have any particular uh, in-depth reason for doing it. I know that uh, uh, given some of the th- uh, threads of the last f- uh, handful of episodes we've done, I kind of wanted to try something that was a little bit more... I kind of wanted to like challenge myself, push myself a bit more further outside of like what I was familiar with. Um, I wanted to, you know, get back to, you know, some of the days when we were talking about stuff like Tarkovsky, where, you know, some of those films can be a bit challenging in some cases. And I wanted to try and push myself in, in that regards. I had seen stuff like Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love before, but this was this was fun to sort of, you know, dive whole hog into uh, his filmography, which is what I usually do for these episodes. Uh, Chris, do you have any Wong Kar Wai uh, intros you want to do before we get started? Yeah, well, just kind of in general. Um, so I know this is ostensibly your choice, but to kind of talk about why we came to it, we had been talking about a number of different directors that we want to get back into, right to, right to your point, to bring it back to some of the early days when we were doing, um, we did Tarkovsky, we've done Bergman, um, and we have a couple kind of directors on deck that we want to get to. So when we were talking back and forth about what to do next after the neo-noir, Wong Kar Wai really kind of fell through quite easily because at the time of the discussion, um, the beautiful, gorgeously packaged uh, box set from Kyterion had come out. I had purchased um, with new 4K um, restorations of seven of his films. Um, and then shortly thereafter, which is not the norm for Criterion, all of them went on to the Criterion channel. So both of us had access to it. Um, and I think it's interesting too. The only thing that I'll say is I, I've had probably prior to this, maybe the same experience as you when it comes to Warren Kawai. I had seen In the Mood for Love. I had seen Chunking Express. I had seen a few more. I have, um, 
Ashes of Time, uh, just because at the time it, it had gotten restored and I was like, oh, a Wuxia film by Wong Kar Wai. Let me check that out. I had seen 2046 because at the time I was discovering his films, 2046 was coming out. Uh, and then the Grandmaster, which I was lucky enough, uh, thank you, kind of foreign imports, was able to get the uncut edition on Blu-ray and watch that. Um, but those are all films that people talk about endlessly. So it would be a bit boring if we were to have done this episode and picked Chunking Express or In the Mood for Love, two films that I think as good as they are um, – have probably been talked about to death. So what I'm really excited about today is that we've kind of picked two films that, at least from my perspective, I have not heard that much about. They were both brand new to me. Um, I don't know if they were the same for you, but it was wonderful to start going through the box set and see some films that I had never seen from what I am happy to say is a master of the form um, and really be, <laughs> uh, I'm laughing as we talk about one of our films later, um, kind of delighted and surprised uh, by what I found um, in some of this work that that's not the kind of um, the, I don't know if you call it upper echelon, but I, I mean, the stuff that most people talk about when they talk about his name in hushed breath. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to dive into this, John. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's. Uh, why don't we get started to that end uh, with your pick, which is Days of Being Wild. So, yeah, my pick um, is Wong Kar Wai's second film, Days of Being Wild. Um, I was really surprised by his early career. Um, when people tend to think of Wong Kar Wai, uh, they think of those kind of meditative language shots, those yearnings and those achings um, uh, between characters, typically between Maggie Chung and uh, Tony Leung. Uh, but here... Um, Days of Being Wild, this is really the first time that we start to see that pacing. I was super close to picking instead As Tears Go By, which was his de debut film and is a crazy, hyperkinetic crime action film that feels like what if Miami Vice was put through a Hong Kong blender and and filtered through the eyes of an indie auteur? You know, what if Michael Mann had no budget and was raised in Hong Kong? What are some of the things that he would do? And it excited me to no end. Um, but when we get to Days of Being Wild, which a lot of people kind of put as the first part of an informal trilogy that comprises um, Days of Being Wild, In the Mood for Love, and, and 2046. This is where we really start to see Wong Kar Wai become the, the director that is really known in the greater film community. This is where we have the first time his um, collaboration with Christopher Doyle as cinematographer. This is where we start to see um, the themes that constantly crop up in Wong Kar's wise work, um, time, clocks are hugely important. Um, the relationships between men and women, um, th th that does play a small part within as um, tears go by, but it, it's much more pronounced here. Um, and, it, and, and it really does kind of put in the, 
fascination that Wong Kar Wai has with when it comes to time and relationships that even though the chemistry and the connection is there, it's never quite the right time. Um, and that's really what Days of Wild is being, is, is about. This is essentially takes place in Hong Kong in, uh, the early 1960s, 60-61. And it focuses on Yuddy, um, who is kind of a, <clears throat> Man about town, playboy in Hong Kong. He is, um, plays the field very well and very confidently. And it's about the relationships that he falls into and what happens in the fallout of those relationships. Um, and how those people then intersect with other people. Um, it's, it's, gorgeous you start to hear um we had it a little bit in uh, i think in as tears goes by we even had it too with this wonkar wise obsession with english music i think that had take take my breath away by berlin um <clears throat> i may be mistaking myself but we, we start to hear that stuff here as as well we see um the gorgeous, beautiful Maggie Chung um, in her second collaboration with Wong Kar Wai. Here she is a um, kind of a, um, an introverted um, salesperson at a stadium that Yudi kind of, in a beautiful beginning, um, he hits on and gets her to fall in love with him. All about the, the nature of time. He keeps coming at the same time every day and tells her that now that he's done this, she'll remember this minute. This minute is going to be imprinted on her forever. And it causes her to fall in love with him. And they have a relationship. But because Yudi is who Yudi is, he tosses her aside and goes on with... Um, someone else, this uh, dancer named Mimi. So the movie then turns into what happens to Maggie Chung's character. Um, uh, Li Zhen, uh, what happens to her and where does she go? She, she finds consolation, uh, not in the arms. There's not a romantic thing. At least it's, it's not in, implied as such, but she finds some comfort from the policeman who kind of, um, polices the neighborhood where Yuddy lives as Yuddy takes on with Mimi, who's a much more robust, outgoing dancer. Um, and then that fades away as well because there are things going on with Yuddy and his adopted mother who never told Yuddy who his real mother was. And then the movie then kind of moves on to the Philippines and there's a crazy, after this kind of languid, very, oh, this is a Wong Kar Wai film. It turns into a blistering action film for like about five minutes and then slowly kind of reasserts itself um, as the... Uh, the fallout of this crazy action sequence kind of comes about, but it's a real interesting movie it, it, that just plays with um, what it's like to play with people's lives and then drop them. What happens to those people afterwards? And we follow those people. And then we follow the cop that uh, Maggie Chung's character kind of befriends and he falls for her, but she's not ready for that. Again, it's, it's all about connections and time just not being right. And then of course the cop and Yuddy, um, come together in this action scene. They, they meet and, and they intersect and what happens because of that. Um, it's, it's a beautiful languid movie until it's not. And it's a beautiful example, especially as you start to watch more and more of Wong Kar Wai's films. You start to see him piecing together the things that he wants to do. Uh, and for that, I, I find it, I find it a fascinating starting place to really understand his work. I'm really happy I saw it because having seen his later films, and, uh, and seeing that style and seeing it kind of, you know, get to where it is, 
I didn't really understand how he got to it. And watching this film helped me to really understand some of that. So, um, John, where I wanted to really start with this is just obviously your overall thoughts of the film, especially in relation to some of the later stuff. I don't want to talk about the ending yet. I think we got to save the ending for a special piece because the ending needs to be talked about. But I, I guess in talking about what your thoughts about about the film coming to it now, um, what did you take away from kind of Wan Kar Wai and, and his and his obsessions and and his kind of thematic um, goals in in film? Did, did you start to see those kind of come here, or did you feel like they 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 really spring to the fore a, a little bit later with some of the other films? Um. I think that definitely the the, the the choice in like the, the the colorization of scenes, for example, how everything is this like greenish shade and the and the and the slower pace, um, which by the way, like I gotta say, it, it is it's wild to me like how and this isn't like a hundred percent across the board for him, but like most of his moon films clock in at like a buck thirty, and you would think that when we talk like when you do talk about like Tarkovsky and his movies being so slow, they're four hours, and that can just be so intimidating, but like he manages to like do slower paced films that still manage to clock in at ninety minutes it's yeah. it's it's kind of i mean for me trying to or wanting to but also like having to manage my time, I was like, thank God for that. That like I can I don't have to I don't have to do weird unnatural things in order to 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 watch everything which was which was nice but like as far as the stylistic stuff yeah this was um, I, I if this is the first of the movies that would be considered part of his like you know his stylistic traits or whatever where he starts figuring this out then yeah it's uh, I really uh, I really appreciated it my big takeaway. Um, for me was uh, when I came across, and I think I sent this to you at some point, um, there was a, uh, someone named Sarah Gore in back in March of this year wrote a piece for The Spool called uh, The Moving Days of Being Wild is All Too Timely. And basically using the the repetitive, the, the theme of time repeating, however, it's always three o'clock, um, and the, the constant, uh, like the Again, using the, the stylization, like how everything's that greenish shade and, and how everyone's in like tight indoor spaces kind of gives this sort of like claustrophobic, repetitive feeling that, you know, and she and uh, the author of this piece, uh, Sarah Gore, she compared that to, you know, pandemic living in, in the year of our Lord 2020 and 2021. And that was like that kind of snapped things into focus how his obsession with time and how in this movie, everything just sort of seems to be frozen and unmoving and just sort of like, and, and again, this like from a plot perspective, this is about how all these characters bounce off of each other. And it's always just like the wrong moment and how it's always those like, this would be great, but you know, they're five minutes too late or, you know, for whatever reason, these people crisscross like seemingly unaware of each other, but and so no one ever actually makes a connection. Everyone is incredibly lonely. Um, that that that's where I was able to find a lot of. And obviously, this is you know not in the original. You know this this wouldn't or this it, it's a it's a new reading of it as of this year uh, to to go in with that perspective. But I uh, that was when I sort of clicked into place for me um, was being like, oh yeah, this is I can I can absolutely relate to it on that level. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, 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 I think everybody can relate to the, um, the idea of misconnections. Everything is set, but it's five minutes too late. It's five minutes too soon, right? Maggie Chung and um, Andy Lau. Andy Lau, I, it just, and I, I think it's a great opportunity just for a couple of moments to talk about how phenomenal this cast is. Andy Lau, who is a superstar of Asian cinema, um, this is his second film as well. He was the star of As, As Tears Go By. Here, he's kind of a minor character. He plays um, the policeman who befriends Maggie Chung. Uh, and I, I'm not going to go on about Maggie Chung except to say is that I have uh, – <laughs> most of my exposure and experience with Maggie Chung is from the countless times I have rewatched Police Story 1 and 2 with Jackie Chan where she plays his girlfriend. And she's playing a very different type. Um, watching her in Wan Kar Wai, she might be one of the most beautiful human beings God ever created. Uh, just stunning. And she is so kind of closed and, and, and afraid in this movie and, uh, you know, is, is hit upon, has this relationship with Yuri and then kind of befriends Andy Lau. Um, and it's, it's that misconnection. This could work, but Andy Lau has already talked about in an earlier scene that he's, he wants to become a sailor. Uh, he never really wanted to be a cop. He always wanted to be a sailor. Maybe he's thinking it's time to do that. So when she next comes by, it's a different cop there. And, oh, he went, he's, he's a sailor now. And that, that kind of follows through later when, um, um, Andy Lau and, uh, Yuddy played by man, uh, and talk about, you know, probably the powerhouse performance in this film, Leslie Chung, uh, who does, did acting, but was also a singer. I mean, just a person of incredible talents. He plays Yuddy. Um, they meet up later, uh, as a result of him becoming a sailor and that precipitates the, the huge action scene at the end. Um, but it, it, it just drives, drives home. All of these things are just quickly missed connections. Um, even when it's just a couple of moments between, um, Maggie Chung and Karina Lau, uh, who plays Mimi, um, the, um, the much more brash second girlfriend of, of Yuri over the course of the film. It, uh, it's, it's really wonderful to kind of watch just how Wong Kar Wai just sets these people up and makes everything, the reason why everything feels as intensely as it does in this movie is because everything is almost the right moment. And it's, it's just not, it's not a, it's not a matter of hours or days or years. It's a matter of minutes. It's it, it, what it feels like. I think specifically because of the way to your point, uh, time stands still in this movie, e even though a certain amount of time goes by, everything feels very timeless. Everything feels very much in the moment. Um, yeah, I gotta, I gotta agree with you on the, on the Leslie Chung. What I like about, I mean, I like as his character being sort of the, the playboy or, I mean, I think to use more recent terminology, I'd probably classify him more as a fuck boy. Uh, but the, <laughs> <laughs> I think he would have been okay with that. We should note too. I mean, uh, Leslie Chung, um, unfortunately, uh, died very young. He was 46 years old. Oh no. Um, yeah, he was gay. Uh, he, he, this was such a, Known for so many things, he actually committed suicide. Uh, he had clinical depression and died. Um, but man, his performance, I, I wish if, if this movie did anything for me besides just continuing to want to kind of be obsessed with Wong Kar Wai, I want to see so much more with him. He's in ha Happy Together, a film, um, 
both of us, I think, have seen, we're not going to talk about today. I think that's a much harder movie for me to unpack, having now seen it once. Um, he's in Farewell, My Concubine. This guy is... You can see why he was as big a star as he is in this film. He is... You cannot take his your eyes off of him in any second of the movie. Well, and given just sort of the... the which, which is, again, a feat, given sort of the, you know, less savory nature of his character like there's 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 like honestly given the way that the the film sets up the relationships he has with women and also the relationship he has with his uh adoptive mother almost gives it's almost reaches like sterling archer levels of despicable but you're always compared uh you're always compelled like just to at least follow what he's going on and like if if nothing else to like take off the edge i think what my favorite part about this movie actually is is just how well he's sort of like the planet that like asteroid like that everything falls in the into the orbit of but like it's not it's not just yeti's movie it is they they he yeah. like the movie is about like if he's at the center the film is just as easily interested in uh you know, in in the cop, in in Mimi, in the in the more in the uh, in Maggie Chung's character, like they they really do like spread out and actually just like no, let's just see how this like spider webs out into into the world, and I think that's probably my favorite. Yeah. And, and and everyone who is in that, and everyone who does, uh, who forms part of this spider web of casting is just amazing. You have you have in the span of like forty five seconds twice blown my mind with just perfect comparisons. Uh, he is Sterling Archer. He is someone that you are inexplicably drawn to, even as you know he's a despicable bastard. I mean, it is very much that. And the second one of being, he is definitely the center of the universe of this film. But the film is not concerned with the center of the universe. The the film is concerned with the entities orbiting right in that kind of gravitational suck. Um, that is, it, it's just kind of, yeah, that is exactly it in a nutshell. Uh, man, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, it, it is the draw of Leslie Chung is that he is, he is so infinitely watchable, but yet yeah, he is a bastard in this movie and I don't like him in this movie, but I can't take my eyes off of him because he's so rich and he is, he is so imbued with the things that Warcon that uh, Wong Kar Wai is obsessed with. He's obsessed with, you know, trying to find something. It, you can make the argument here. We haven't talked too much about some of the other plot points, but you mentioned his adoptive mother. There's also, again, one of the things I love about Wong Kar Wai is like on a dime, it will go from this languid pace to this like intense. Uh, physical violent scene and there's a scene earlier on where with a hammer he beats the crap out of one of his adoptive mother's suitors because he's he's a playboy he's essentially yutty he's essentially this young kind of playboy kind of playing with the the adopted mother for her money um what Yuri doesn't understand is that his adopted mother is totally fine with this. And she knows that she just wants the attention. And even if it comes at the price of having to financially kind of dole out gifts, she's fine with it. But, um, one of the things that, uh, goes on from the plot is, uh, Yuri doesn't know who his real mother is and the adopted mother kept it from him and finally tells him who it is. You know, and there's a whole secondary plot where he goes to the Philippines to find his true mother to kind of confront her. Um, so you can say that in a way, maybe a lot of what Yuddy is doing is, you know, 
finding solace or finding a proxy because he never knew who his real mother was. So he's playing with all these other women and using them and tossing them aside because he can never find the real one. And the real one, the real woman for him in this case is his real mother that he's never been able to find because his adopted mother never told him. There's so many ways that you can kind of play into the drives and desires of the character, but ultimately it's much more fulfilling and it's much more sumptuous to just sit and let the experience wash over you and not really try to analyze too deeply what's going on. Uh, the things that Wong Kar Wai wants you to pick up on, he'll emphasize in the film. He'll emphasize the nature of time. He'll emphasize the nature of misconnections. He'll emphasize um, the the tendency for us to yearn and to search to find that thing that we need. And, you know, because we can't really identify it, we'll never be able to find it. And I think that happens to many of the characters in this film. It happens to, to Yuddy. It happens to Andy Lau as the cop who thinks he wants this relationship, but then becomes a sailor and doesn't find what he's looking for there. It happens to Maggie Chung thinking that this is the person that she wants and being obsessed with him, but not understanding that it's never going to happen. It happens to Mimi who wins and considers it a conquest, but in the end loses it as well. Um, it's, 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 it's a simple movie that outlines its its themes and its obsessions very strongly and very visually uh and it's and and for me it makes it just a just a beautiful introduction to his work. I would definitely say go and see as tears go by if if you don't know Wong Kar Wai and you want to start at the beginning start at the beginning because that is a damn fine fun kinetic frenetic film uh that has a lot of great performances and, and a lot of great sequences. But if you want to understand Juan Car why, I think this is a beautiful place to start. Yeah, I think that's uh that that's uh that's a fair point. And uh you said you wanted to save uh talk of the film's ending until the end. And I feel yeah, like we can't drop this film without talking about the end. So the movie ends. And then there is kind of an epilogue. And the epilogue is completely disconnected from the rest of the movie. And it introduces a new character that we've never seen up until this point. And it is played by Tony Leung, who, as you will know, if you don't live, you know, in the middle of nowhere, is one of the most famous Asian actors ever. He is a master actor. You may know him now because he is starring in um, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. He is, he is playing a very specific character that I guess would be a spoiler to add to, to say here, but he is also kind of, you know, if you're not thinking of um, Andy Lau or Leslie Chung, you were thinking of Tony Lung when it comes to the relationship with Wong Kar Wai. He is in almost all of his other films, except for the one that we're going to talk about next, strangely enough. Um, he is a master actor, um, but he's never been in this movie. And there is a final scene that just shows this kind of dandy gambler, character um, getting um, himself all spiffed up in his tiny apartment to go out in the town and ostensibly probably carry on the tradition that we saw with Yuddy. It's such a crazy moment. I was trying to do some looking up on that stuff and it seems that there's some suggestions that like this may have been that scene with Tony Leung may have been like a meant as like a teaser for a sequel. Like, hey, if you make another one of these, guess who's up next time? It's Tony Leung. But like, that just seems like if he had been in the movie at all up until that point, then that would make sense. 
in some case, but like they don't, yeah. they just like, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't like, there's no meaningful plot. It's just like a dude silently getting ready for a night on the town to, you know, playboy it up like, uh, like Yeti did. Yeah. But, 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 but here's the thing about that scene is, um, to your point, there's no dialogue. There's no nothing. It's just him getting ready. There's music in the background. You can't take your eyes off of it. Uh, so you could make – there's been talk about this was a potential kind of teaser for a sequel. Um, I like to think of it more as kind of the cycle kind of it's, – it's, it's time. Time is a circle, right? It just keeps repeating on itself. We never learn. Um, Yuddy certainly never learns. I, you know, spoiler for the film, but Yuddy dies at the end of this film uh, because of his actions. Um, but the how, how do I say this? Uh, but the obsessions and the yearning and the searchy that Yuddy represents is consistent. It's forever. It's eternal. So the way that I interpret the end with Tony Leung is. These things that we are searching for, we will always be searching for. So it doesn't matter that our main character is dead. This search is going to continue. And it could be Tony Leung uh, just beautifully <laughs> putting on his gloves and getting his cigarette case ready. And the one thing that I love, um, I, as I've been watching a lot of Asian films lately, especially Wong Kar Wai, no one, even people who like are doing okay, no one has a nice apartment. Everything is very cramped. Everything is very small. But to see how fastidiously he gets ready and puts his clothes on and gets himself set up for the persona that he is going to present as he goes out into the night, um, it's the continuing cycle of searching and yearning for that thing that we can never quite find. And I think that more than any reading into potential teasers or Hey, this is how we connect because Tony Leung and Maggie Chung are going to be in, in the mood for love in 2046. More than any of that kind of plot centric tying things together, it's really just reinforcing the yearning and the searching that this movie is obsessed with is going to continue. And it doesn't matter who it is. We are all going to continue that search. Um, and man, I, I love that ending. I love the ambiguity of it. I love that Wong Kar Wai to this day has not given uh, anything about what that ending means. It's just, this is the thing. Make of it what you will. It's such a mind fuck of an ending for a movie that is not a mind fuck of a movie, if I may use that. Uh, uh, yeah. It just makes me appreciate it all the more. <laughs> no, I, it, that feels like a, like David Lynch, please elaborate on this. And, and he just says, no, like that, nope, that's, not that's, 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 that's the kind of vibe I want for, for that kind of ending where, uh, n any explanation would just sort of diminish it. Yeah. Even if there may be some real world actual answers for why that I mean, maybe he actually had, maybe he didn't mean it as that, but it, uh, it ends up being, uh, <laughs> a, a, an, an intri intriguing. I think that's the word I want to go with. Uh, <laughs> intriguing and uh, uh, intriguing into this film. Um, yeah. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we move on to our next film uh, for the evening? Yeah. So, uh, John, why don't you take it away with Fallen Angels? <laughs> So 
Fallen Angels. It's a 1995 film from who else? Wong Kar Wai. And uh, <laughs> the reason why I picked this movie is is very simplistic. Let me let me set the story. Uh, it's been mentioned in this episode and previously uh, in other episodes that I usually like to like watch as many films within the, the the theme that we're picking just to you know catch myself up especially in places where i'm not as familiar um and sort of need to feel the need to play catch up uh so i can have meaningful conversations about these films and in the case of Wong Kar Wai, i feel like he's a filmmaker where he likes to do things that are not the most like easiest to follow um at any particular moment and a lot of the times when I was watching mo- the movies for the first time being like, okay, I think I understand what's going on. I don't un- like, it was, it was a, it was a real struggle. Like I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I was able to like grasp this at first time, to- at first, uh, at first glance. And the reason why fallen angels, uh, stood up, stood up for me, um, as being the pick I wanted to make is entirely because of, uh, even against his other, uh, movies that we would have watched for this, uh, for this series that, something about this one just felt like there were vibes for days and just felt just completely wild in a way that I was like, even if I don't understand what this movie is, something's going on here. Um, And so that's ended up being uh, my pick uh, uh, or that's ended up sort of being the the start of why I wanted to to dig into this one uh, further. Uh, Chris, I remember uh, you ended up watching it. Was it today or yesterday? I watched it this morning. This morning. And this was your first time, I believe, right? Yes. And I believe the exact words you said to me was, uh, Fallen Angels is insane. Um, So yeah, why don't you tell me about that? Yeah. Dude, period, Fallen Angels is insane. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, so maybe it's best to provide a little bit of background. This was originally um, a piece that was going to fold into Chunking Express, which was Juan Carvalho's previous film. Um, it didn't really totally fit with what he was trying to do there, and he liked the story, so he expanded it and made it into this, Fallen Angels. So it is kind of a companion piece to Chunking Express, and if you're familiar with that movie, the way that I like to describe this is, this is the nighttime version. This, this is Chunking, Chunking After Dark. This is Chunking After Dark. It's very similar. It is two intersecting stories, um, but whereas Chunking Express has story number one, stop story number two, this has story number one and story number two kind of intersecting and interweaving in between each other, where Chunking Express almost takes in place entirely in daylight and is bright and sunny and uses, uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, to a fault, uh, California dreaming. This is a much darker nighttime story. This almost takes place entirely at night and it deals with darker characters with darker motivations, but it's the same thing. It's people trying to connect and maybe not having the best timing. Sound familiar? Because that's what Wong Kar Wai does. Um, but, I'll just give you a couple of quick thoughts and then bring it back to you, John. Um, this movie is insane. This movie would have fit in really nicely with last month's episode about neo-noir because it is essentially about a hitman who is um, having second thoughts about his career choices. Um, there's another intersecting story about a criminal who escapes from prison and um, 
tries to make a living, but the way that he makes a living is by breaking into businesses and forcing people to partake of the business. Um, and it, I found it hilarious and I really liked it. Um, but this movie is a darker, more intense Chungking Express. It is, uh, more vibrant and intense in its feelings. It um, really where I think Days of Being Wild not successfully kind of merges the languid and the um, intensity. This does a much better job of interjecting the two kind of um, throughout the entire movie. Uh, there's a weird thing with Fallen Angels where Wong Kar Wai uses really, really wide angle lenses but he uses it entirely to do close-ups on people. So everything has this distorted perspective, which if you think about like daytime and nighttime, right? The nighttime is always a little darker. It's always a little bit more distorted. He and Christopher Doyle brilliantly capture that here. Um, but it's insane. I, <laughs> it's an insane movie uh, with what it tries to do and the way that it characterizes its uh, main players, John. I thought it was a hoot. I... Right now, um, I like it more than Chunking Express, which might be a little crazy. Um, I think Chunking Express is wonderful. I think it's second story with Tony Leung and, um, is it Fei Wong? Uh, just the, the beautiful, I mean, if there's an original Manic Pixie Dream Girl, it's Fei Wong from Chunking Express. But this movie just is like, it's Chunking Express in a distorted nighttime mirror. And that's more my tone anyway. Man, I really like this movie. <laughs> it's freaky. It's weird. It goes to some far out places, but I I really do like it. I think that, uh, I mean, yes, this is not an episode about Chunking Express. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think the, I, I do like the movie, but uh, yeah, the, the, the overuse of uh, California Dreaming <laughs> almost by default uh puts me to prefer fallen angels um but yeah like the 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 the, the wide angle lenses that distort the lens I, I, it almost feels like at a certain point you're like i expect him to watch like a 90s skateboarding video with a fisheye lens like it's it has that that thing that almost ends up giving the whole thing like a drunken hazy like i can't like yes I I'm admit <laughs> yes. like this is my first time I'm coming to this as an as a as a new viewer um it's not in the it's not in my primary language I recognize that there's going to be like gaps I have to like overcome to get on the film's level but I but I <laughs> given the the, the 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 distorted lens stuff is not something that I noticed in other of movies of his so I feel like this movie sort of stands alone as being like we're just going to absolutely do go on a different vibe we're going to make you feel weird and uncomfortable uh in and not give like two shits about it uh it is uh and yeah like we can talk about the uh, you you mentioned like how a lot of the thematic elements of the movie how the people break up they you know they they get together the the ways the characters intersect it's not as like it i I feel like the plot like there's ways in which you can track the plot of the movie but i feel like it's perhaps it, it doesn't have quite the same structure as uh in uh our last movie where yeti like yeti's actions sort of ripple out into the rest of the world and you see what happens to everyone else as a result of yeah uh of his actions this or is they, a much like, more chaotic kind of 
there, there's not a ripple effect. It's just, it, it's, it's pinball. It's this hits this, this hits this, it comes back and hits this. And the, they never leave the main board, but they're always pinging against each other in this movie. Yeah. I, um, so like the, the main characters tend to be there. There's, uh, there's the hitman uh, whose name is Wong. Um, he has his, <laughs> unfortunately his, the, the woman that he is, uh, his primary relationship with for, for most of the movie, they don't actually, I don't think they actually give her a name, uh, in like Wikipedia lists. Michelle raises character as killer's agent. Like, yes. Yeah, she's the partner. the partner. She's the partner. Yeah. Which, you know, a name would be nice, but, uh, the, <clears throat> but they, they have, uh, there, there's the two of them. They have a business relationship, uh, where she basically, uh, is the, she's the manager and he's the, he's the hitman. Uh, and she becomes like obsessed with him. Uh, but then he runs into this woman named Blondie. Um, and they have a, a bit of a, they have a thing going on for a little bit. And then completely unrelated to that, Blondie or in in the in Wong's partner's building is uh Ho Chi Mo, the, the, the he's the criminal who uh yes. breaks into people's businesses and shit. Um he's uh he meets a woman named uh Charlie who is obsessed with this woman named uh who's obsessed with Blondie because apparently she thinks that she stole her boyfriend or right. something. And those two characters like at first, I didn't realize didn't realize that connection that Wong's second relationship in this movie is Blondie, but also it's not really like it's the same. I mean, unless, I'm assuming that the few number of characters means that it's the same Blondie, but also it doesn't is not addressed. It is not like it's there's this, no point. It, it's the same Blondie. But when Wong, the hitman, meets Blondie, Blondie is already lamenting the loss of her ex-boyfriend, which is the boyfriend that Charlie is obsessed with in the other story with Ho Chi Mo. Yeah, like there's there's no like uh, you would. Um, yeah, there's there's these moments, these weird moments where like people like the weird connections between anyone that don't necessarily resolve in anything bigger or epic. Like there's no like there's no come to Jesus moment for for Charlie where she gets to have her revenge. Cause like the, for, for Ho Chi Mo and Charlie, their adventure is that she is obsessed with finding this guy and he's not exactly a stable person himself. So he's like, yeah, sure. Let's go find your, let's go find this woman. <laughs> um, and then at a certain point that relationship falls apart and towards the end of the film, they run into each other again and she's now working as an airline stewardess seemingly has her life and her shit together. She's not crazy anymore. And she doesn't um, even acknowledge him. At just that point. Doesn't even acknowledge him or seem to know that he exists. So like, I mean, which is cool, like good for her, but like there's, uh, it's, it's kind of wild that like the, a good chunk of the movie is towards in of their story is towards finding Blondie, a person we know exists and is in a different part of the movie, but there's just that thread just goes completely sideways. Yeah. Like there's, there's, and, there's no resolution to it. And we should add as well. So we are definitely not talking about chunking express, but this movie is so inextricably tied to chunking express that it, it's so much richer. If you've seen chunking express and then watch this movie. So for example, to the point you just mentioned, the whole point about now she's an airline stewardess. And the airline stewardess component is a huge part of Chunking Express. 
That's true. In the 20 long. Now, and the other part, again, I'm going to make no um, apologies. My favorite character in this movie is Ho Chi Mo, the mute crazy guy who who spends his evenings breaking into businesses and then trying to get money to perform the to perform said business whether it's <coughs> excuse me forcing someone to uh, get a haircut breaking into an ice cream truck and then taking a family hostage and making them eat as much ice cream as possible until they just get tired and pay him money uh he's wonderful but there's a quick throwaway line when he's five years old, he can't talk anymore because he ate expired pineapples. And if you remember right, the beginning of Chunking yeah. Express, that's a huge part of Chunking Express. So these, you can see where these movies tie in. And it's so much fun to watch this movie as a funhouse mirror of the other. The first movie is two stories. This movie is two stories. They deal with the same thing, men and women and, and relationships and misconnections. And but this movie is just the extreme version of that movie. And because it's so extreme, I really, I'm really taken with it. I'm really taken with Wong as the hitman. And the whole beginning of the movie is the setup of how his partner operates. She, I mean, she's not just his business partner. She's also the scout. She scouts the perimeter and she draws the maps and she faxes the maps to him so he can go in. He makes a throwaway line. Um, he actually does it twice, and not to spoil the movie, but there is a circular story to his narrative. In the beginning, he says he doesn't like to make choices. He likes to have the decisions made for him. He doesn't care who he's killing. Everything is done out in advance, and he's just given the directions and does what he needs to do. It's all preordained. And you watch how that process works, where his partner, um, I need to call out the partner because we've already talked about this. Michelle Riaz, you, you said, oh, my God. Just she, She's great. Yeah, great and just... Again, unearthly in her beauty. Um, but the way that they work is she scouts the area. She draws the map. She faxes him the map. She gets his apartment ready for him. She sets everything up just the way he likes it. So he can go stay there, do the deed. And when he leaves, she cleans up afterwards. And it's in the refuse and stuff that she gets to know him and falls in love with him. And that's great in and of its own. And there are a couple wonderful moments and some really crazy moments where you see how she goes through everything and how that makes her feel about him. And then you find out later on that he's purposely leaving her hints to get her to know him. So there's this, it, it's such a weird relationship and it's so beautifully done. This is a perfect example of how Wong Kar Wai can merge different styles and be languid one moment and hyper-kinetic the, the next moment. And then with Christopher Doyle, just do these beautiful artistic moments. Probably my favorite scene in the entire movie um, is with story two with um, Ho, Ho Chi Mo and Charlie. There's a fight. They're talking about Blondie and Charlie is writing kind of a, a confession for Blondie. And in the the restaurant where they are, there's people named Blondie and they hear the name Blondie and they jump up to fight. And there's a guy there who's also named Blondie and it's a coincidence, but everyone starts to fight. And it becomes one of those kind of now at this point, trademark one car, why kind of, um, um, kind of like shutter stilled like action sequences. But then there's a moment that looks like Ho Chi Mo and Charlie um, are up front 
you can see in the background the fight going on. It's in black and white, and it looks like there's almost like a waterfall kind of falling over them. And the whole scene in black and white is Hochimo falling in love with her, and the way that he shows that visually is trying to put his arm around her to touch her, but he can't touch her because he holds her as this sacred thing that he now loves. And he's constantly, he's putting his arm around her, but not quite touching and then going the other side and not quite touching. And then finally just kind of getting very close to her. And it's such a, it's such a beautiful moment made all the more tragic because this is Wan Kar Wai. So even though the chemistry is there and it's meant to be, the timing is not ready because she is still hung up on this boyfriend that Blondie stole. So that whole that whole section, that whole story too with Ho Chi Minh is really nothing more than an encapsulation of everything that Wong Kar Wai has been doing in every film prior to this, but just done in a dark funhouse mirror kind of way. Uh, man, <laughs> again, I, I keep coming back to the text, but this movie is insane, John. And because it's insane, I really like it. And it really drew me in. I like, I mean, the, uh, yeah, the I like the way that he's able to use the, the 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 same themes that we've you know we've talked about throughout a lot of the episode in sort of different um to to different like exploring it through different means. Um I think that because this is definitely like you know you wouldn't although a lot of the themes are the same, the stylistic choices between something like this and you know in the mood for love are, are you know couldn't be uh couldn't be further apart i don't think i wanted to ask though do you think like at the like the very end of the movie where the where i think it ends up being uh wong's former partner uh, from story one with ho chimo from story yes. two running into each other and driving away on the motorcycle together do you think that that do you think that that ends up being sort of a in so far as we've been talking about a lot of like missed connections and things not working out and may, and who knows, like even the relationships that do happen are usually brief and transient and maybe that's fine. But like, what do you make of the, the ending of the two characters from otherwise unrelated stories? Sure. Like they are connected because we know we, the audience know how this all works together, but they don't know each other meeting each other and then driving away together. Do you think that constitutes a happy ending or is this another like on a string of, you know, happenstance and chaos? I, I've got to go. You, you said it in, as you were framing the question to me, you kind of said what I wanted to say. I think it constitutes an optimistic ending because I think if this movie does anything, if what Wong Kar Wai is saying, it doesn't matter how bad the outcome is. The pursuit is worth pursuing. I think that's ultimately, as I go back and I go through everything that I've seen from his work, the pursuit is worth pursuing. So even though everything kind of has fallen apart for these characters before, and now we have this, and again, man, I really, and again, it might be that it's new for me, but I really like this movie. <laughs> Um, now we have this ending where um, the partner and Ho, Ho Chi Mo are on the motorcycle driving away. I don't think it's going to work out. It may not work out, but I don't think it matters because I think the pursuit of what they're 
doing matters. So it's the pursuit that matters, not the ultimate goal. So in that way, to me, that ending is ultimately very optimistic, and it's ultimately kind of bears out what Wong Kar Wai is saying in all of these films, is that even if it doesn't work out, isn't the pursuit worthwhile because of what the potential what the potential what the potential of that pursuit can be uh and i and i love the ending for that and i especially love it for again i don't want to keep bringing it back to chunking express because we're not watching it but chunking express has an ending that doesn't seem like it fits in this method with the first story with the with the, the person who kills the other person and uh but the second story, the one that really matters, the one with Fei Wong and the one with um, Tony Leung and the stewardess, it, it, again, it's that same thing where it keeps getting screwed up and they keep messing up. And at the end, it's still messed up, but they have this optimism that it's probably not going to work out, but it doesn't matter because it's the pursuit there that's what matters. It's, it's the same as every old story. It's the journey, not the destination, right? And the journey changes you. The destination doesn't matter. I think that's what happens here. As you were as you're talking, and I, I don't want to undercut the very poignant and thoughtful, uh, uh, very nice thought you just had there. Um, but what I just realized as we were talking about the sort of the chaos and the pinball of it all, um, it honestly remind it. You get the vibe of you remember in the office when they're all watching the DVD menu bounce the dvd icon bounce around the tv and every time it hits just before the edge and then bounces off they're all just like sad and then there's the one moment where it perfectly hits the corner and everyone loses their goddamn mind that I, i've i've felt that feeling before and i feel like the ending of fallen angels is that one moment where you're just like yes Everything has come together for this one thing to happen, and it's fleeting, but it's beautiful, and I like it. I could not have said that better myself, sir. Perfect ending for this conversation. Well, on that particularly effusive note, uh, and you won't notice this in the edit, because I think we'll edit this down very tightly, but we have uh, been talking for over two hours at this point. Uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> I think it's time for our last segment for the night, uh, which is uh, recommendations. Uh, I'll go first this time. Uh, if you're talking one car, why? I mean, we did. We kind of purposefully chose not to talk about sort of his big hits, your Chunking Expresses, although we did talk about it. And in the mood for love, but like, fuck it. In the mood for love, fucking rules. It is a great like. Like it is. There's a reason why there are so many th- think pieces and what have yous about it. Like it, I love in the mood for love and it is absolutely like i think it's yeah it's either going to be that or fallen angels for me if i was to pick like a favorite uh wong car Wai movie at this point um though i know i've there's a there's a couple gaps left i have to get to um the other one i wanted to mention briefly is uh it's not really on topic at all uh is uh, the recently uh released star wars visions uh series on disney plus it's a handful of different anime studios doing short anime films uh with their own stylings and themes that have no connection to uh like no connection to broader star wars stories and uh that's really what i want is star wars that has nothing to do with star wars um i was a big fan of the animatrix uh i'm still a big fan of the animatrix it's probably my second favorite 
animate uh, matrix related thing at this point. Um, though obviously with the new move coming out, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but, uh, it's yeah. Star Wars visions. I was like, even the, the, with different people involved, there's going to be ones that hit you more and ones that aren't going to hit you as much. But I found myself like it's, it's like nine episodes. You can get through it in a in a single sitting if you if you put a little like if you think of it as um, tonight's movie is going to be Star Wars Visions, then it's 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 not going to take up too much time. And when it when it works, it's really fucking good. Agreed. Yeah, we we just spent about twenty minutes talking about Star Wars Visions, and uh, yeah, you can definitely do the whole thing in a day. I think the longest episode is a half hour. Some are only like 10, 15 minutes long. And when it works, uh, as at least one episode for me does, it works like gangbusters. It's a great, great feeling to have that there with the Star Wars universe. Yeah. The, yeah. At this point, Mandalorian, Star Wars Visions, just give me stuff that has nothing to do with the story of the Skywalkers. And like, that's all I want. Totally. And this is that. But it's also really like, it's also like, this is anime ass anime. Like, this is the like we're, we're the the stuff that really pushes this sort of aesthetic sense of star wars in ways that you just would not have seen otherwise and i really i don't i don't expect it to necessarily launch a you know a brand new set of series or movies or whatever except if they were just to keep on doing this it's just sort of as its own distinct thing i think it's really special how about you? Yeah. So for my recommendations, I'm going to echo you for once. This is going to be the one time that both of us kind of recommend the same thing. Um, I can't speak highly enough about the work of Juan Car Wai. Um, I have since September 15th, and we'll give you a, a quick glimpse of the, the next episode. It's October again, which means I am doing the Hooptober Marathon. Once again, uh, 31 movies in about 45 days. All of them have to be watched and reviewed. There are certain rules. So next month, we'll be tackling two of those films. It's a lot of horror. Um, and we are in a time, just like last year, where, you know, uh, the times are pretty precarious. So maybe horror doesn't always work. So I've been interspersing my horror films with getting ready for this episode. So I can't recommend enough if you are not familiar with Wong Kar Wai, or if you're only familiar with, as John said, some of like the larger films like Chunking Express, which we talked about a little bit today, and In the Mood for Love, which I'm right there with you. It's We didn't talk about it for a reason, because so many other people have. And the reason so many other people have is because it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, If that's all you know, though, or you just know him from that or Chunking Express, start at the beginning. It's not a lot of movies. Um, Go through and see how someone finds a film language that is relatively unique and and passionate and kinetic and vibrant. No one makes movies like Wong Kar Wai does. Um, go and seek these movies out, uh, please. If you have the Criterion channel, they're all on there right now. Um, if you're a Blu-ray collector, the box set is one of the most exquisitely built box sets I have ever seen in my life. Go and check his films out. Outside of that, I'm going to talk a little bit of TV, too. Um uh, Star Wars Visions, John already talked about. Um, I am not a huge TV watcher, uh, but it is something that my wife and I like to kind of do together. And we were just recently kind of thinking through what are we going to watch next? We had just finished watching um, 
Lupin uh, on Netflix, which if I have not recommended, I have to recommend. It's one of the best television shows I've ever seen. A great French crime drama um, that plays on the um, character of uh, the gentleman thief Lupin. It's wonderful. But what we actually just watched today for the first time was the debut episode of Doom Patrol uh, from DC Comics. Um, it had been part of DC. It was Vertigo for a while, uh, a really famous run by Grant Morrison, if you're familiar with the comics. But this is the story of a bunch of misfit people, um, Brendan Fraser, Matt Bomer, um, Timothy Dalton, isn't it? Um, a number of people... Um, Jeremy Carver, I think, is the uh, showrunner, head writer. He was previously on Supernatural, which I will go on record as saying is my wife's favorite show of all time. So she was predisposed to want to watch this. Surprising how well it works. It is uh, very much an R-rated superhero show, but it is much more concerned with dysfunctional people and the way these dysfunctional people deal with the trauma in their lives to kind of come together for a greater purpose. It was surprisingly good. It's on HBO Max. So if you're an HBO Max subscriber, go and check it out. There are three seasons. Really, really good. Um, I can't recommend it enough, John. If I can ever f- figure out my streaming accesses uh, enough, then uh, <laughs> I, you, you, you definitely sold me on it when we were talking about it before the, uh, the episode started. Um, yeah, I think that that's probably going to do it for for us this evening. Uh, I do want to mention in closing that uh, our website, cinemaduel.com, is a lot more active these days, thanks largely in part to the efforts of one Chris Voss uh, to chronicle his journeys through Hooptober. Um, how many do you have currently? So at this point, and it's strange, I should have done this last year. We, I think we had the site last year, but at this point, I posted one this morning. Uh, I think we are up to nine films uh, done so far. I've actually got 10 finished. I just haven't written the review to publish it on Cinema Duel yet, but um, it's, it's going to be pretty fast and furious moving forward. Probably expect at least four to five a week. Um, going um, into next week. A lot of crazy stuff. Um, I already kind of gave away next episode because I've really got to bear down and make sure that I can get everything done by the end of October. So October Cinema Duel is going to once again be around October. So John and I are going to already start to look at films that we'll be talking about. I promise nothing will be as crazy as The Witch Who Came In From The Sea. Uh, or martyrs, yeah, the, or or martyrs. Uh, although, again, I love martyrs uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, the films will be a little bit easier to digest this time, I promise. But there'll be a lot more to come uh, this week. In fact, uh, there was. Uh, the lost film from George A. Romero uh, called The Amusement Park, which was fantastic. It was an educational film that was um, commissioned by a Christian group to talk about elderly abuse. And George Romero, being George Romero, turned it into something quite terrifying while at the same time educating you. I also just got done um, doing a crazy film called Uzumaki which is a Japanese film about spirals and uh, cursed spirals that infect a town. So it's going to get weird. It's going to get wild. I hope you jump on to cinemaduel.com and read those reviews. Um, please comment if there's weird shit that you want us to talk about. Um, please let us know in the comments. John is going fast and furious. I think, John, at this point, you're at the almost at the tail end of the Varda. 
box set? I, well, you say Fast and Furious, but I think at the end of the last episode, I said that I was done the Gleaners and I uh, writing, or I was about to be done, and then I finished it like a couple days ago. <laughs> so it took me a whole month to from telling you that I was almost done to actually writing it. But yeah, I've got uh, I've got three left. Uh, the next one up is Faces Places, which were I'll just as a mild spoiler the this one's probably going to be or at least my reaction to watching faces places after have a year almost a year of watching agnes varda is like oh this hits very differently when you've watched her entire filmography in a relatively short period of time um it, it like it just it just makes more sense like it's not like i didn't it didn't make sense the first time but now i'm just like oh this makes a lot more like I understand decisions that were made and why they were made. And it's, uh, it still rules. Like it's, it's so great, but yeah, it just, yeah. So I think, I mean, and I think that's why I, I think both of us are ad- advocating go to Wong Kar Wai and kind of try to do the same thing. You can see the building and the progression, just like you can with Varda. I, I am so excited um, because, you know, kind of inner workshop secret, but I edit and, and, you know, proof all of John's pieces for Varda. And when I did the one for Gleaners and I, I, I immediately, when I finished it, went to John and said, Hey, it's done. You can post it whenever you want. By the way, I really want to see the Gleaners and I now based on your, the way that you wrote about it. So there, it's, it's great to take an opportunity, especially with something you've, you've not as familiar with to jump in and just kind of start at the beginning and work your way through and see. Just as you learn and grow with the films, you can see how the director and the writer, you know, kind of um, learn and grow at, at the same time. So I'm going to put you on the spot, John, for the end of this episode. And if you don't have an answer, that's fine. But as you're closing in on the end of Varda, what can Cinema Duel expect next from you? What are you going to be tackling next? If we're talking about like a long-standing series, because because I want to think about like who is a director that would be potentially within our wheelhouse and uh, a, d- a director that has a filmography that could sustain a longer series like Varda. Um, I, to be honest, what I come back to is what I think might be a possible next candidate would be Kurosawa. Wow. Now, here's the thing, though. I don't necessarily know. There's some spots where I'm like, I don't know if I can talk about his early propaganda war films. That feels, or that I'm not 100% sure of. And the way that Varda's box set was specifically lined up, not by chronology, but by theme, lent itself a little bit towards some of that stuff. So it would be a different, like with Kurosawa, either we would come up with themes ourselves that criterion didn't or we would just do chronologically um and also i'm not sure if that would be i i think that i would want to at least like consider the possibility of like whether i want this is something i want to do all on my own or if this is something that you would want to tackle together we both love faces places a lot but i really had the uh the the bug the bee in my bonnet about doing Varda specifically, but uh, it would not surprise me if I said Kurosawa. If you'd be like, I'd like I'd like to do Kurosawa too. So it's no secret that Kurosawa launched the idea of this website and this podcast. So. I think that yeah. So I th- that's kind of where my head is at. But I would want to spend some time reevaluating some of the structure and format to see like if doing it the same way makes sense. Or if we uh, try and think of 
what is the best format for doing it. Okay. I'm not, we will not hold you to anything on this podcast, John, but uh, let's talk about that. Cause if that's the way you want to go, I would definitely be interested in participating in that as well. And, well, it seems like it would be unfair for me to be like, yeah, I'm going to write a whole series on Kurosawa. <laughs> Fuck you. <Yeah. laughs> I, I think both of us are equal in our uh, passion for him as a filmmaker. So, Absolutely. And on that note, uh, we hope that everyone is staying safe and is fully vaccinated and just doing their best to stay alive. Uh, watch the movies uh, that mean something to you and try something new if you're in a position where that's something you can do. But uh, we'll say goodbye for now and you have yourselves a wonderful evening. Yeah, completely echo everything you said, John. Um I've given a lot of thought lately to, you know, what is the best thing that I can do to ensure the betterment of my community and uh, my country and my planet. And that is really to, you know, live by my principles, which is, hey, get vaccinated, um, look at science, help your fellow person. Um, educate them, be there for them, and uh, just try to live the life that you want to see in others. So please do that. Please stay safe. To John's point, please, please get vaccinated. And uh, hopefully uh, coming into 2022, we can be a much more um, liberated in our uh, movements and in our cinema watching. So Take care, everybody. Have a great month, and we will see you next time. I need to fucking watch Dune in a theater. Don't fuck this up for me. God, God damn please it. don't fuck this up. I have said, look, I'm terrified to go back to the theater, but if any movie's going to pull me in, it's going to be Dune. We've got a month and a little less than a month at this point. Please, please, October 22nd. Just let me watch. I don't. I do. Life has stripped me of all my wants and desires, except that I want to see Dune in theaters. <laughs> like, that's the only thing I care about anymore is that. So please let me do that. Have a good night. Good night. Everybody.